Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisations within those communities. Each month, I'll be talking with industry leaders from a range of sectors and not-for-profit organisations, but I prefer to call them for-purpose organisations. I'll be talking about topical issues in a relaxed conversation style, so sit back and enjoy. Today's podcast, our second episode, is brought to you by our podcast partner, Micah Projects. My special guest today is Karen Walsh, CEO of Micah Projects. Karen has worked in the community sector for over 40 years in direct service delivery, management, governance, collective and collaborative work. She has continued and contributed to national, state and local boards. She is interested in breaking down silos and creating systemic change to support individuals, families and communities. In 2016, Karen was awarded a Doctorate of Social Work and Nursing by the University of Queensland in recognition for her many years of work in the not-for-profit sector. In 2017, Karen was awarded a member in the General Division of the Order of Australia, for her work in the homelessness sector and in mental health support. During this podcast, I'll be delving into Karen's background, asking what attracted her to the sector, unpacking her views on shared leadership, seeking her insights on the future of social services and what might look like as a fair Australia. Before we begin, though, let's have a quick word about our podcast partner, Micah Projects. Microprojects is a not-for-profit organisation committed to providing services and opportunities in their community to create justice and respond to injustice. This year, Micah is celebrating its 25th anniversary, an incredible milestone from very humble beginnings. Microproject works to break down barriers that exclude people from housing, healthcare, employment, meaningful connections and to give people a voice. Okay, let's now introduce Karen. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks again for agreeing to be our guest uh, on CBA's podcast, Seen and Heard, and congratulations on Micah's 25 years of contribution to the community of South Brisbane and the broader Queensland community. So how does it feel, this 25-year journey? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a lot older. (laughs) I hope a bit wiser, (laughs) Um, but... You know, it's amazing to look back on, and but yet it doesn't feel like 25 years. It just feels like a series of events yeah. <laughs> that build on each other, which yeah. I suppose we all think back and see the continuity, which is something that's a bit of a privilege. You don't often see that these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So to be around long enough to see that the continuity of starting something and having it build and grow you don't always get that opportunity. There's plenty of things we haven't built and grown that we would have liked to. Sure, sure. So to be able to see um, the results of some of the vision of the very beginning um, is is satisfying and a privilege that you don't always see. Agreed. Okay, I'd like to talk more about microprojects and the great work that you do later in our conversation, but let's go back to well, what might be your entree into the social community services. And firstly, Karen, for those uninitiated, what is the, how would you describe the social and community sector in Australia briefly? I don't know that you can. Yeah, it's tough, <laughs> um, there's it? so many different aspects to it these days, but when I started, you know, Queensland didn't even have very many community 
organisations. Yeah. yeah. Like you had government institutions, you had um, the larger disability institutions, like the subnormal yep. um, label that was given to people. Horrible. Um, you had... We started building organisations to respond to homelessness. Yeah. Um, so that you know that was in the late seventies, early eighties. So would you say that many uh, many organisations have really grown like Micah in response to community need? Ultimately, I think that we all grew up with the vision that any group of citizens who were concerned about the issues in their community could band together, incorporate mm, mm. and make a difference. And the way you made a difference was um, by having this vision of what you could do and apply for funding when that was compatible. Yeah. But often in those days it wasn't a prescribed, it yeah. was the response to homelessness and you gave the idea and people decided whether they liked it and sure, you sure. got some funding now, of course, it's much bigger with billions of dollars going yeah. into it. Um, then the mechanisms for coming together are different. Yep. But I don't think the social services sector should ever lose that vision that a group of citizens in a community are concerned about their community and have mechanisms like not-for-profits yes. to be able to create the change that they know is needed, whether that's you know, family members of people with a mental illness and carers or, pe- you know, young mothers themselves with young yeah. women who wanted um, services to be different. Uh, so I think that that is a really important thing. I hope we yeah. never lose. We're at risk of losing it, I think. But I, I, I know that from my the numerous people that I've worked with over the years that that is a vision people held dear. A lot of organisations I've been involved with have also folded mm. um, because of that pressure um, and the re-tendering that has yeah. often happened. Yeah. It's, I agree. So many organisations we work with, Karen, started from very humble beginnings, just a group of concerned mothers or you know, just community members coming together trying to respond to what they could see was a, a real need in their communities. I always say we started at the kitchen table and now we're at the corporate table. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, actually, you know, yeah. the corporate table needs to learn a bit from the kitchen table, <laughs> not just the other way around. <laughs> good point. That's a, that's a good governance lesson. Thank you, Karen. Um, but what attracted you, I'm interested in understanding, to, to this sector? Well, I was involved in a lot of social justice um, activities as a young person at high school and yep. when I left school, I went to a Catholic school. Um, St Vincent de Paul was probably the first. Yep. Um, and in those days, it was a struggle to belong to St Vincent de Paul because I was a woman. So we um, started <laughs> the a first, youth group. First movement. <laughs> and the youth group, of course, was um, male and female. Yes. And probably our goals weren't, weren't quite as aspirational <laughs> as much as they were recreational yes. in a place like Rockhampton. So, yeah. um, but you know, a lot of young people were drawn to, mm-hmm. um, and myself included, to the notion that our faith is important yes. and that it has an important role in creating the society we want to live in, not just commentating on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, you know, not being the moral judge of what a society should be. So I was involved in what was Osnham House back then. Yes. And 
but it was the emergence of youth work really that um, I was involved in church youth group and the orphanages in Queensland were beginning to close mm. and the emergence of street homelessness. Yep. Um, and a lot of our youth groups were tasked with, you know, the challenge of, well, what should we do, be doing about mm. people that are living on the street? Mm. And I got involved in Rockhampton where a group of us decided to set up a youth service and mm-hmm. knew nothing about doing such a thing. <laughs> got into trouble from bishops and mayors and everyone because we didn't ask anyone's permission <laughs> to do things, but we didn't worry really, to be honest. Apologise <laughs> afterwards. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you knew what you were apologising for. But, um, yeah, so that was a really um, exciting time for, yes. and that was happening all around Australia. I remember going down to Melbourne and meeting people that were living in the Housing Commission blocks down there and looking at how do you create um, and recognise the poverty that people are living in in Australia because a lot of emphasis was being put on liberation theology. Um, Often it was about overseas, but it's in our backyard and how do we sort of give life to that in a respectful way and calling for dignity and... And it's still, you know, unfortunately, poverty and inequality has grown as much as we've prospered as a nation. So, did you did you fall into this sector, or it was always a passion? It sounds like I know like I didn't know there was a sector. <laughs> True, <laughs> like none in the seventies, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, no yeah. one knew there was a sector. We fell into being, you know, on oh, we're a management committee, and we've got to learn how to be a management committee. Um, yeah, and I think that. But it was all driven by what do we have to do with the people that we were working with, which yeah. was young people. So obviously we started living with young people. We started yep. looking at what would it take to provide accommodation to young people. Yep. Um, some of that was you know, just an empty nursing home, I remember, that we um, were given permission to use and had to scrub it and clean it first. Yep. And... Um, there was a lot of young people going transient through Rockhampton and they often stopped there because their income, um, they'd have to pick up their cheque or... Right. And because of the, you know, the four hours of getting the train and yep. getting the yep. next... Um, wasn't People stopped hitching in some of those areas of Queensland because there had been a lot of violence and so it wasn't safe. So often you'd have a group of people stay in Rockhampton for up to two or three weeks, you know. Yes. So from these early beginnings after you left school, then this time in Rockhampton, you then found yourself in Brisbane. I was nursing um, in Rockhampton, doing my nurses' training while we all yes. contributed voluntary to setting up a youth service as a, yep. a sort of a thing we did in our spare time. And then I, yeah, I moved down to Brisbane and um, met Peter and... He was working at the Brisbane Youth Service um, and I'd had a fair bit to do with the Brisbane Youth Service. Yes. I suppose the um, it, it just became that we had a youth service but what we really needed was a shelter yes. in Rockhampton and and I, at that transition point I came to Brisbane. I was thinking of whether I'd do other study or not but um, ended up feeling nurse if I were, if I did was going to because there weren't jobs in the sector like it is now. No, it was right. always thinking, well, when would either. the opportunity would come? So, I felt from a work perspective, I enjoyed nursing, and that's what I do. Um, but then I got more full time into youth work. We ran a residential 
um, at Kalinga and that got funded as one of the first residentials for young people for over 12 months. Um, prior wow. to that, it, wow. it was uh, three months and it's, it's known as the Lodge today. It's uh, not in the same building. It's yes. now... Um, been sold and renovated and looks magnificent. It would have been great to live in it like that. <laughs> <laughs> so that, let's now go to Micah because obviously the 25 years is extraordinary but it, it was, again, pretty humble beginnings, wasn't it, with um, St Mary's Church? Well, there was sort of a connection from me and Peter. I used to go there on a Sunday. We knew Peter Kennedy. Yes. Um, we had been you know, all exposed, I suppose, to some of the theological critiquing of society. Yes. Um, and we're really interested in social justice. Right. And how how you make that real for the, you know, the poorest. Peter was involved in prison ministry. Yes. Um, I mean, we, we uh, were living at the lodge and had a workshop where we employed young people to do all those pews. I was the only one who didn't get paid, I think. <laughs> but we sanded them down and, <laughs> oh, okay, and right. um, yeah, yeah. did the pews in the church and Peter was great for selling them off. So <laughs> people bought the extras and that was a work experience and then they were making furniture right. as well as being accommodated. So it sort of led St Mary's to this pathway that a lot of us were individually involved yes. in... Um, our social justice, whether it was refugees or whether it was in a, in your profession as an educator or yes. a, a nurse, or you know, how do you how do you adapt and make sure you include the people? You yep. know, the AIDS issue had come up. Um, yep. Yep. There was a lot of people involved in advocacy for domestic violence yep. and women's issues. You know. All the things we filed, you know, like women as priests in the Catholic Church and <laughs> all those sorts. Of yep. <laughs> um, so then we, at the centenary year, which was 100 years of St Mary's as a parish or as that new church, I think it was 100 years of that church, um, we looked at, well, what do we do collectively and used the principle of tithing and 100 years, how do we collectively give back to the community? And that's where um, the consultation for a few years went on <laughs> um, about, well, what should we do? And, and the themes that came out were was to provide direct services because clearly it was needed. We had people sleeping in the car park. It was in the middle of the deaths in custody. Yes. Um, Indigenous people, Peter Kennedy was very good at saying they had sanctuary in the parish grounds, but of course Peter went to Nunnambar and we were there looking after <laughs> them during the week. Um, so, but you know, they were sort of brave things for Peter to do, and yeah. for us yeah. it was the challenge of we wanted to do it, so how did you make it work? Um, that was a lot of people with intoxication not wanting people to go into the watch house. And then that's how it emerged when we formed MICA, the first project we got with um, talking to the Indigenous community was to do the outreach to transport people because a lot of Indigenous agencies had had really struggled with being able to do that because of yes. the different um, places people came from, some conflicts, yes. yeah. um, being able to say no. It was really a mainstream thing that we could do yes. and and it wasn't as difficult because we didn't have those family ties or cultural ties but we needed to be culturally sensitive yes. and work with the agencies that were doing the um, diversion work. So we worked with Murray Watch and still work with Murray Watch 
in doing 25 that today. Years old. Yeah. So for, again, as I mentioned, from humble beginnings, community consultation, what's driving us to support the those in need in our community was really the the foundations of micro projects. And three things sort of emerged. And it was what could you do to create justice? Like you know, clearly we believed people should have a home. Yeah. So that was a whole journey of how do you create something that gives people a home. Yes. To love tenderly was really about many of the issues around domestic and sexual violence, including in the church. So um, a lot of women at that time were still being told to stay, that it was they weren't to leave, that they just needed to go home and make their husband happy (laughs) and the violence would stop. Um, And, that you know, there were women in, in... from all ages. So that was something that people really wanted us yes. to take on board and certainly the sec- childhood sexual abuse in the church because people had started making complaints and, you know, they were in those orphanages and places because it was considered the church w- would provide the love and nurturing mm. environment mm. Uh, mm. when their family couldn't. Yes. So, and then walking humbly was really about that you can't do any of it alone. We need to work with lots of people. Yes. Including the people most affected, like their own lived experience. So this, on reflection, <coughs> as you mentioned in our in your opening comments, 25 years you and your colleagues have you know, worked tirelessly uh, for your community and that's now expanded out beyond South Brisbane, where you began. Um, let's just talk about some of the what you might think of in your reflections as some notable achievements. Um, some obviously come to mind, are pretty obvious ones. But what are some of the big ones from your perspective? Oh, clearly working on a housing-first approach to addressing homelessness is still what we're passionate about. Yeah. We don't believe people should be homeless yeah. and living on the streets. And, you know, that doesn't always mean that it's just the streets, it's couch surfing, it's yes. living in cars, it's living in vulnerable boarding houses where they're not safe or, you know, we, we can solve homelessness and with the money that's there and we probably need some more money, you know, we definitely need the money for the housing. Yep. But you also need to embed support in housing, not only yes. support people when they're homeless. Yeah. So Brisbane Common Ground was certainly um, achievement. I think the achievements of people who experience sexual abuse in the church, yes. you know, that we have worked with people for 27 years, probably it was before mm, yeah, it was. we were even incorporated, that the, the three women came to the community and said, we want this community to support us in this journey of getting justice. Yes. And then we met other people, the Ford Inquiry, the Royal Commission into institutional abuse. Um, And, you know, a lot of the issues there with the church created a lot of challenges for us. Sure. um, Because the church is a very powerful institution. Mm -hmm. Churches, not just the Catholic Church, but certainly the Catholic Church was when we were in a Catholic community. Yes. Um, And I think Young Mothers is you know, is it's a highlight in that it exists <laughs> because um, so much government money has gone to crisis intervention over the years yes. um, to mitigate their own risk and, it, and there's a, an appalling lack of money for early intervention and prevention. Mm. So the work we do with the MARTA and Caboolture Hospital um, around the Young Parent Program, yeah, yeah. Um, we're really 
really proud of and, of course, getting to a point where we could be the regional domestic violence service for Brisbane um, was something we we never aspired to because we, we were involved in networks for domestic violence, but, um, you know, it's been a privilege to actually implement that program when we came up for tender and... Um, you know, to see where it is today compared to where domestic violence was 15 years ago. We we could talk all all day about some of those incredible achievements and uh, I've been very fortunate and privileged to be involved with you for over a decade and and seeing some of those come to fruition firsthand. Um, So, uh, you know, congratulations on really what's been a a stellar 25 years for an organisation from such humble beginnings. in having, as I said, having worked with you over that sort of decade, I'm fascinated by your approach to leadership because I think from memory, when you first began at Microprojects, you were the only employee. No, they always had a bookkeeper. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there were two, two of, of us. <laughs> two of you. And, uh, you know, a community... And a student. Yeah. Steve Griffiths was a student. I'm not even sure you were working full-time then, were you? Ten hours a week. Yeah, so from from ten hours a week part-time with a bookkeeper and a, and a volunteer student, we now talk about an organisation that's quite a large entity spread right through Queensland, but your approach to leadership has 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 evolved but really stayed very similar to this, what I call the shared leadership model. So... Maybe just give us a bit of an overview what your this model is and how it works at MICA from your perspective. Look, I think in the very beginning we had a mandate to do things in a way that was not to create an institution, although, no. you know, you can't avoid it in some ways. But, you know, institutions are all very different sure. <laughs> in their shape and size. and But that we wanted to retain that sense of... Um, you know, we don't need heroes. We need people to work together, yep. ordinary people to have jobs, to be able to pay our yep. mortgages, to be able to raise our children. Um, whereas the church had often, it was this single person out and they had their followers. Yes. So from the very beginning, well, you know, I couldn't do that anyway. I had three children myself. Yes. And, um, and from the very beginning, we wanted to have a system of leadership that, um, was shared. It wasn't just myself. Yes. And um, we've nurtured that over time. And, you know, there's been times when we've probably been challenged to move away from it with all this talk of government, the, all the, the way in which governance is talked about and having yes. Uh, yes. executive offices. And, um, you know, I think that for us it's really about, well, a lot of people started in service delivery. Yes. And... And were interested in um, developing their skills in governance and leadership and management, and and we've really fostered that. Yes. So that people who are sort of doing that organisational management understand the work that we do. Yes. And um, I think all the literature today about leadership is saying that it needs to be agile and. Yep. adaptable and yep. some of the structures that you're encouraged to have are not agile and not yeah. adaptable yep. so um, we just kept trying to keep on working at what does it actually mean to mm. share leadership um, you know some decisions have to be made at the end of the day the board and my role as CEO and people's roles as leaders 
you know, we all have to make decisions. We don't want to complicate that everyone has to make every decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you sort of know what those decisions are. There's a f- fairly good understanding of the, the scope of those decision-making, yep. you know, because yep. it's yep. all – we are contracted to provide services. Yep. But I think sharing each other's wisdom and sharing each other's experience and ideas, even if you're not directly involved in that particular service – um, is a valuable thing for people to do. It's easier as we get bigger for people to fall into silos. Yes. And we're really trying to work against that. Yes. You know, we know that our team who respond, everybody can think their team has got the most challenging work, whereas really the issues underlying everyone we work with are safety, childhood adversity, poverty, really struggling with navigating service systems. Yes. And navigating their basic income, yep. navigating where to have a home, and navigating safety. That um, and people's illnesses um, exist alongside their aspirations. People's, um, you know. So we try to work with people's aspirations, recognizing the barriers and challenges they have, yeah. and really across across all of our our services, there are these common human experiences and I think when people have had experience in in working with people with disability they've got something to add and contribute to people with a disability and DV yeah um so it's not all as different as we probably um like to think yeah (laughs) it's it's not expertise is is really valuable but it's more valuable when it's shared sure and, and what I've observed is obviously you allow people to grow into those roles and, yeah, they make mistakes. And well, I'm happens. growing into it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Absolutely. I mean, we're all growing into it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as soon as you do something, it change, someone wants a change somewhere <laughs> and you've got to rethink it. I mean, but they're not unique things to Micah. Um, yes. You know, you know, lots of organisations really struggle with what does it mean to be able to govern an organisation well, manage it well, provide the services on, you know, a limited amount of money mm-hmm. for the scope of what you're trying to do. And most of what we're doing is the demand and scale of the need is much mm-hmm. greater than the resources we receive. Correct. Let's take a short break to learn more about Community Business Australia. Community Business Australia is a boutique consulting firm working exclusively with not-for-profit or as we like to call them, for-purpose providers, working in a range of social services sectors. Our clients operate in the aged care, disability, community, health and charitable sectors. Our consultants are experts in their chosen field. They become trusted advisors to the board and CEO. Community Business Australia helps organisations grow and CEOs meet their KPIs. Visit our new website at cbanow.com.au. Follow us on social media and contact us directly via phone or email to see how CBA can help your organisation grow. So it's a nice segue, Karen. Um, You and I have discussed on many occasions the impacts and implications of, over time, the shifts in government's policy positions, funding, support for the social services and particularly those very vulnerable members of our community. 
and then we observe sectors like aged care, disability services, moving to what I would describe as this sort of con- consumer marketplace, very transactional style model of funding. So I just want to get gain your views on uh, you know how government should support and continue to fund um, these important social services in, in our community. Well, I think diversity in funding models is obviously valuable, like yep. for many people. NDIS, as an example, is a excellent thing. Like they can, they know what they need. They yes. they can manage it. They have whatever resources they need to do that. Whether that's their own yes. ability to do it, or whether it's a family member. Um, but I think that. You know, wherever people have got complexity of need and multiple needs, mm. navigating multiple systems, then a market-driven uh, way of funding and very individualised funding. Because what comes with individualised funding is the price of the activity. Mm. So whether I'm doing service coordination or whether I'm mopping a floor or whether I'm doing whatever. And, of course, when you're navigating multiple systems, those activities are different in every system. Um, So you have to have flexibility. And the biggest issue for the most disadvantaged in our community is that ability to engage. You don't know how many times you're going to have to knock on the door before you actually get... But if you stop knocking on the door, then they're just left in isolation. So yep. you only get funded in that individualised model if you're if you actually get a response and you do something. Yep. So or there's limited times that you can do it. Whereas we know that the basis of um, what we need to do with people is a relationship, and that relationship needs to share power. Mm. People need to not feel that. It's someone else deciding or um, telling them what to do, but that you're developing a relationship where you can suggest what to do or you can encourage people to meet their obligations and put out the consequences or you can respond to their goals and aspirations. Like people live in a lot of... um, I call it... It's an institution without walls these days because there's so many things controlling what people do like you know they've got their mutual obligation for their income they've got issues if they've been in the justice system and they're on parole or corrections or a community order they've got you know their engagement with the police over you know whether it's a neighborhood dispute or it's public nuisance or other serious crime which may still still means when they've finished their time in jail they need somewhere to go to be reintegrated into the community. Yeah. Um, you know, health, you've got people on health orders as well, like yes. if people have had forensic mental health. Um, but navigating the health system and health equality is a really important thing that we're not going to get by simply relying on a public health system or an individualised system. We really need to get healthcare out into the community to the most vulnerable so that, um, you know, they're not left with comorbidities, that they're not dying earlier, they're not suiciding. Uh, and that needs new models um, that we need to think about. So it's just that I don't think one size fits all. And, yes. and certainly in our, our, you know, the patch of work that we want to work in is with the most vulnerable 
and you really need block funding to enable yeah. you to do that within a quality framework, within our outcomes yep. framework. Um, so you don't want to lack accountability. But you do want people to understand that relationship. People don't have family. People don't have significant relationships. If they do, they need to be reconnected sometimes. But even then, it may not work out. So you do need a social and health system that really recognises we have to build this network of people around people because of how vulnerable they are. And we have to partner with them, not, not... have a many have experienced childhood abuse. Many have yeah. experienced it by people in power. Um, you know, the Royal Commission into Institutional Childhood Sexual Abuse showed us that. Mm. And you know, that's a lot of people who we engage with in this most vulnerable group. Yes. But then there's also people who've had childhood adversity from their family, yes. including sexual abuse. And so, family isn't the answer to everything. Yes. <laughs> and um, families do carry the burden of it when adult children have mental illness often or yes. suicidal or during their teenage years. And we know from all the productivity reports that just came out with mental health or any of the Royal Commissions, I don't know what's going to come from aged care, is that you know, you've really got to value that this relationship you have with people mm. in a position mm. of trust and mm. care mm. is it's got to be guarded and yes. it's got to be valued. So the time it takes to have that relationship needs to be costed mm-hmm. and um, you can't just, it's not just transactional. Mm-hmm. 2020, Karen, has been an incredible challenge, isn't it, for communities across the world dealing with the health pandemic COVID-19 and the crisis that's um, pursued both health and uh, the economic flow on. Um, and I recall a famous statement from um, Winston Churchill um, where he was quoted as saying, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing your view of what, what's happened to those that you support um, in 2020 and um, how they've been supported by governments and, and others and are we got lessons from this crisis um, as we move into 2021? I think the lessons just keep emerging um COVID has been a really difficult year. I mean, we were very involved in the floods in 2011. Yes, yes. And that that was an um, amazing experience for us as an organisation because um, it, it was, you know, a short period of time and, yeah. and, and we certainly um, were engaged in people getting rehoused. And, yes. Um, but with COVID, the people who were working in the flood, you weren't affected by the flood most of the time. Correct. With COVID, everyone was affected. So it was really recognising how do we care for ourselves and how do we care for others, how do we provide services, and that no matter what decision you had to make, whether it was you needed to be with your family because they have immunity, you know, illnesses that were immune, um, susceptible, or or age, or children, um, or yourself, like some staff members may have had... um, illnesses that they needed to be conscious of in a Mm. pandemic Mm. Um, that no matter what decision you had to make even if it was just even if it was around anxiety it was the important decision to make because and it was valuable so everyone had to be valued for that 
role they played in an organisation for us. Like, you know, obviously we played a big role with street with people who were on the street mm. or people who were going to be fined if they didn't stay home. Well, if you don't have a home or you're in an right. overcrowded situation where people were told they could only have two people in their home. And, I mean, that resulted in thousands of people. Um, in Brisbane, it was almost up to 2,000. Um, in hotels, um, we were working with over 42 hotels at the peak of it. Um, and we just, because we provide after-hours services, we were at work when it hit crisis point. So that was Easter. Yes. Um, and it was just sort of we had a hunch <laughs> and we thought, you know, we're going to have to call people into work if it's necessary. And then that proved that, A, you know, we were in a privileged position. People knew our phone number yes. <laughs> and they rang it. And, you know, we were, we were working very 24 hours. The government was very swift in getting money out to provide motels. Yes. Um, you know, several million have been spent across Queensland for people to have hotel accommodation during that period, those periods of time where you couldn't be not in your home. Yes. Um, it also meant we had to provide food initially because all the street services had stopped. Yes. So our cafes really changed what they did and just produced mm. over, you know, I think it was about 19,000 meals wow. and were distributed. Volunteers came forward. People donated to us to help us do that because that was in the first days before you could get the grants. Yes. And I think that what we learned during COVID was that government giving grants in a more simpler way to build on what you were doing, whether it was domestic violence or homelessness, was a good way to do it rather yep. than a full-on tendering process, which you sure. didn't have time um, to really be able to do, which some states did. Um, yes. So it did show that building on innovation actually can work, mm. um, that um, open tendering processes don't always get the best results yes. and that building on what's actually happening and working is an effective way of moving forward in some cases, not all the time, sure, you know. Sure, sure. Uh, and we're not talking about big lots of money either. Yeah. We're talking about um, short-term contracts. Yes. So that was really good across domestic violence and homelessness. But, of course, what's so disappointing is that um, we, we, we showed and demonstrated what we always knew, that if you housed people, they wouldn't be homeless. <laughs> and, <laughs> Sounds simple. But, um, and people took it up. People liked having their own room, their own shower and their own, you know, some of them were in smaller areas. You wouldn't stay there forever. But it's, as a principle, when people think that people don't want to be, want to be homeless, people took it up when it was offered and was required. So yes. um, people often say they, go, they want to be homeless because they don't like what's being offered. And there'd be a few exceptions of that, but they'd be people probably with, um, significant mental illness. Yes, yes. Um, So, you know, it did prove that governments can fund this and people can be off the streets, that we don't have to have, yes. three, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Brisbane, um, everyone housed people during COVID. Yes. Perth didn't need to. <laughs> but Sydney, yeah. Melbourne and um, throughout Queensland, so from Cairns to Brisbane, Yes. So the disappointing thing now is, of course, in our economic recovery, we haven't seen social housing. As part of the solution. As part of the solution 
except this week Victoria announced $5.3 billion, which is amazing. It's the biggest contribution. Um, New South Wales has also um, announced some, a lot less, but it's still a significant amount of money. But we haven't got there in Queensland. So um, there's lots of other things being built. (laughs) Uh, But we sort of believe that the lessons from COVID, we will certainly contribute continue to advocate. I think it's been really clear the connection between housing and social issues across government Mm, departments. mm. So, you know, when the hospitals didn't want anyone to be there, but they were in a hotel, it meant they didn't have to go there. Mm. We took nursing to the hospital to the hotels. Yes. And it really showed actually how how fragile our safety nets are. Yes. So we need to build our safety nets much stronger, but it, but we certainly have the indicators of how it could be done, how what service models, what um, what would work if you had the opportunity to yeah. make this long term. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our nurses did an amazing job; like they they did thousands of occasions of care. They did flu vaccinations um, when no one else was going into hotels. Yes. Um, and, of course, you know, they didn't do it alone. They had all our community workers as well. And, you know, anyone else at MICA who didn't, couldn't do their jobs got involved. So, mm-hmm. um, and lots of innovative stuff happened with young parents in their home because, you know, Facebook and other yep. things were really um, important. So... I think we've got a lot of work to do about housing and the relationship with mental health, disability, child protection. Sure. We had families and children in hotels, so it made everyone very visible. Yes. It showed the depth of need for people with a mental illness. It showed the number of children. Women still were birthing and yep. in some cases, unfortunately, having their children removed. People died in the hotels. Yes overdoses or cancer and palliative care services were involved. Um, So I think having that ability and the hotel owners who did an amazing job, really, this wasn't Mm. their core business. Sure. Although they did have some tips for us about some things that (laughs) even though they may never have had it on scale, they sort of certainly, you know, had experienced suicide in hotels. So it it was, um, you know, you always learn a lot from that. Yeah. Amazing. And also the generosity of the community, like people came forward with with food, people came forward with cash donations, sure. PPEs, so, you know, and government did a good job at trying to get those things that we were struggling to get. I'm just thinking there's so many more things I want to talk to you about. Uh, we might have to come back again and talk because, you know, the great work that Mike has done with partnering with a whole range of other uh, community organisations over the years and, and the great outcomes that together, you know, with government and other organisations and yourself that you've achieved has just been remarkable, I think, in terms of examples and learning. We've had our failures, so True, we could yeah, also yeah. learn yeah. from them. <laughs> yeah, but that's where you learn a lot, often, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But so just to, to wrap up our time together today, you know, this 40-year journey, Karen, is extraordinary from your school days right through till 2020. Um, you've, there's probably so much you've seen and experienced, and uh, but I'm really interested in hearing what's your vision for... Uh, the future uh, for a, a fairer, more equitable Australia and, and what should we do as a community to actually help um, support that? Tomorrow's the National Day of Action for Income yeah. <laughs> Support <laughs> for ACOS so everybody can support that. 
you know, people during COVID got an income they could manage their lives with. Yes. They were still living in poverty yes. or close to it, but yes. people felt that they didn't have to go to a charity to get food, to put food on the table for their family, yep. um, to buy their medication. Yep. They were grateful for the housing, the, the accommodation, yes. but they didn't have to ask for everything else. Yes. And people forget the dignity of being having an income. Yes. We've gone down the path of its, you know, um, mutual obligation is the dominant, but it's actually about people's dignity to participate. And everything, we did that as an economic stimulus. We didn't do that because suddenly we thought um, we'd change the lives of poor people. Yeah. <laughs> like it was done to, and that's what income security does. It yes. contributes to the economy. And if the amount is right, it gives people dignity and it gives them the opportunity to participate in the community. Mm. And I think that, you know, people people demonstrated that, that that was the case. You always hear the stories probably over-exaggerated of people who misuse that income. Yes. And, yes, there are people that to the general population, if they have an addiction or that they might not use it wisely, but that they're a very small group of people and there's a lot more complexity to that story Correct. than a simple decision about what to do with their income. And I think housing... Clearly, as a nation, we've got to realise that giving people a home. Yep. Finland decided to end homelessness. They just kept building. Yep. And we also have to bring in a new form of housing because we know that we have um, significant numbers, but, yes. you know, like Brisbane could do with three or four common grounds for individuals. Yeah. It could do with it for families. Um, it's got to be affordable, like no more than 25% of people's income. Therefore, it needs a government subsidy, whether it's built by government or built by the private sector. And in some cases, we need to inbuild that support. So sometimes that would be 24-7. Other yep. times it may not. It depends on the needs of the population group. Yep. But we can't have people with a mental illness just being left um, yeah. to get a unit anywhere that they can't manage without support. Agreed. And we know that people can do that. But I think, you know, early intervention is something we can't forget. Like, yep. if we could respond to, to every mother and child who, and their partners as they choose, you know, that if they're safe and we, we could prevent... We know that the average age of, of um, mothers is 19 when, when they become homeless. Mm. Um, we know that if we started to really respond to their needs and their children's needs and then their partners and families and with housing, healthcare, speak, you know, making sure they're school ready, mm -hmm. well, then we would actually be preventing the number mm. of people in the next 20 years mm. Mm. that are going to end up in our systems, whether that's child protection, juvenile justice, corrections. Yep. Yep. Like we've got all the evidence in the world to demonstrate that. Yeah. Yeah, but sure. we haven't got the commitment to really put the money into those early years of children's lives with their families. Yep. Like yep. we don't want people... We, we need to break the intergenerational trauma of family separation. Yeah, wow. So, ladies and gentlemen, what an inspirational woman. Karen makes things happen. She works with governments and other providers as partners, as we mentioned, working to get the best results for those in need in our community. 
I think you'll agree that being the CEO of Microproject is not just a career or a job for Karen, it's her passion, her vision and her dream for a better and fair Australia. So Karen, thank you and thank you to our podcast partner Microproject for making this interview possible. Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing and communication consultants for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about the issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd and this is Seen and Heard.